What a joy to be with you this morning. Uh, I hope you'll keep that passage in front of you. We're going to be uh, looking at uh, Luke 24 this morning. And what I want you to see is that the early disciples were the original skeptics. The early disciples were the original skeptics. In other words, the story of Easter, the story that uh, God raised Jesus from the dead in bodily form, has always been very difficult to believe. Uh, did you notice in verse 11 when the women, uh, they found the empty tomb and they run back to tell the men, they tell the, the, the 12 or now the 11 uh, disciples uh, how they responded in verse 11. It says, they did not believe them for these words seemed to them an idle tale. Uh, I prefer the NIV translation. It says um, their words, the women's words about the empty tomb seemed to them like nonsense, nonsense. So nothing's changed in 2,000 years. The story that God raised Jesus from the dead still to so many today sounds like nonsense. But I want you to see that the original skeptics were 2,000 years ago, the very first disciples. And there's nothing new under the sun. If you're skeptical today, you're standing in a good 2,000-year-old tradition. They thought it was nonsense. And it wasn't just the men who thought it was nonsense. You've got to see in the story, the women had a very hard time believing it as well. Uh, Remember the two angels, they appear to them in verse 5. They say to the women, they ask them this question. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Now, if you think about it, that's what's called a rhetorical question. I looked up the Oxford Languages Dictionary and it defines a rhetorical question as a question asked in order to create dramatic impact or to make a point. In other words, they're not looking for information. They're actually trying to, the angels are trying to get the women to think. The angels are trying to get them to see the mistake that they are making about this Jesus whom they've spent three years with. They're trying to get them to see the mistake that they're making. And so this morning, I want to spend some time with you reflecting on and looking at the mistake that they were making about Jesus and how we can make the same mistake today. That's what we're going to look at this morning. And the first mistake that they were making is that they denied the miracle of the resurrection. That's the first thing that we're going to look at. The second mistake that they were making is that they denied the meaning of the resurrection. They denied the miracle of the resurrection and they denied the meaning of the resurrection. And I want you to see that first point in in the very start of the story in verse 1 because if you read verse 1, you can see what they were expecting as they made their way to the tomb, can't you? And who can blame them? What were they expecting? Well, we'll see in a few moments. But if you look at just a few verses earlier in chapter 23, verse 55, this is what they saw on the Friday. Today, Sunday and Friday, it says, the women saw the tomb and how Jesus' body was laid. They saw the tomb and they saw Jesus' dead body laid in that tomb. And so when they came back two days later, they were expecting to find him exactly how they left him dead. Look at verse 1. On the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb taking spices. It says a few verses earlier they had perfume as well, taking spices that they had prepared. Why are they bringing spices and 
perfume. Well, it's to deal with the smell of a decomposing body. Three days now. And so Arkent Hughes tells us, we mustn't let our knowledge of the glorious revelation that awaited them dull us to the dark sackcloth covering these women's souls. They were depressed, exhausted, mourning, with no hope whatsoever. They didn't expect anything except more sorrow. And so at this stage in the story, after everything that they witnessed on Friday, the horror and the violence, you can see that they have come to the conclusion that Jesus was just like all the other founders of all the other religions, dead and buried. You can see that, can't you? On Easter Sunday morning. Okay, sure, he taught some good things, he did some good things, he touched our lives, but now, tragically, just like all the others, he's dead. And you can see how depressed they were about this if you skip ahead a few verses earlier, to ver- later to verse 21. Uh, the disciples, the men... Uh, You can see that they were hoping for so much more that this man was going to be different. They had walked with him for three years. They talked with him. He touched their lives. They'd seen him perform amazing miracles over the course of three years. And so they say in verse 21, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. You see, in the world today, there are all kinds of religious leaders And there are all kinds of religious movements, aren't there? All kinds of religious leaders, all kinds of religious movements today. And you know what? Today is no different from the first century where we see the story. And so on this Sunday morning, the women thought that Jesus was just like them. Dead. Uh, When the former president of Cyprus... He was the Archbishop as well, Makarios, when he died in 1977. His followers spray-painted the streets, all the streets in Cyprus, with the words, Makarios lives. But of course, they weren't saying that he'd been raised from the dead. They were saying that his influence carries on, his memory carries on. Famous preacher in New York, D.L. Moody, had, had this great quote that he told his parish in New York. Someday you'll read in the papers that Moody is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am today. It's a great quote, isn't it? But he's not talking about being raised from the dead in bodily form. He's talking about the afterlife. He's he's talking about his spirit lives on even whilst his body is dead. Here's the point. The point is that as throughout history, different religious leaders have said all kinds of things about the afterlife. They've they've said all kinds of things and thought all kinds of different things about the afterlife. But the hard reality about all of them is that they all died. And so that's where we find the women in our story in verse 1 this morning. They thought that Jesus was just like them. 
But then the angel said to them, and they're saying to us this morning, why do you look for the living among the dead? You see, the extraordinary thing about Easter, the thing that puts Jesus in an entirely different category all on his own, is that Jesus is not just like them. What do the angels say? He is not here. He's risen. So don't make the mistake of looking for the living among the dead. Jesus is not just like them. He's in an entirely different category on his own. John Stott says that at Easter, God performed a dramatic act by which he arrested the process of decay and decomposition and corruption. And he rescued Jesus from the realm of death and he transformed his body so that he had a new power and was now immortal, never to die again. What other religious founder could possibly be qualified for us to sing, Thine be the glory, risen conquering son, endless is the victory, thou over death hast won. You see, Jesus is not just like them. And so this Easter, please don't make the mistake of looking for the living among the dead. Because he's not here. He's risen. Well, you might be getting sceptical at this point, and I hate to be a downer, but uh, Christopher Hitchens, one of God's favourite new atheists, uh, has a problem with this story, uh, and he wants to question the historical reliability of this story. He says, having no reliable or consistent witnesses in anything like the time period needed to certify, certify such an extraordinary claim as the resurrection, we're finally entitled to say that we have a right, if not an obligation, to respect ourselves enough to disbelieve the whole thing. Now, let's not kid ourselves this morning. If you're someone like me who believes that the resurrection of Jesus was an actual, verifiable, historical event, then you find yourself amongst a tiny minority. It would be naive to think that everyone gathered here this morning is convinced that this is a historical, verifiable, actual, physical event. So let me take a few moments to do some fact-checking and some myth-busting on the resurrection. Is what Christopher Hitchens is saying true or false? Because, you know, there's a very well-established academic discipline that historians use to verify and validate whether or not a historical document is true and valid. It's called textual criticism. You can look it up if you want. It's a well-established academic discipline. And they apply two tests mainly, to verify whether or not a manuscript is historically reliable. Test one. The first thing that they do is they count the number of manuscript copies there are of the original document. So you can study the classics at UWA or university today, a degree in ancient history, and you might study ancient historians like Tacitus or Herodotus or Thucydides. They had cool names back then. But here's the thing. 
we've only got 20 copies of what the Roman historian Tacitus wrote. We're not there yet, thanks, Dave. I'll bring that up in a few moments. We've only got 20 copies of what Tacitus wrote. And you know what? We've only got eight copies of what Herodotus wrote. And yet no historian in their right mind would question the historical validity of what these two historians wrote. Beyond question. We're still studying them in degrees today. So I want to ask you this. How many copies do you think we have, manuscript copies we have for the New Testament? Say it again. 30,000 is correct. If you put together, let me break it down for you. There's 5,000, a whopping 5,309 in Greek. There's 10,000 in Latin. And there's 9,000 in other languages, which approximates, gets up towards 30,000. The Greek ones are the main ones that we focus on because they're nearest in time. 5,000, do you know how many times more that is than Tacitus? That's 260 times more manuscripts for the New Testament than Tacitus that nobody would question in an ancient classical degree. So that's the first test. How many copies are there of the original manuscripts? The second test is to find out the date in which those manuscripts were written and then figure out how close that is to the time that they're referring to. Okay, And the closer the date of the manuscripts of the events are to the events that they're referring to, the closer that they are together, then the more reliable those manuscripts are. Because if I'm writing about something that happened this morning, my memory is going to be better and there's going to be more people who can verify whether or not it's true than if I'm writing down something that happened 10 years ago. Which means that the further the date of the manuscripts are, from the events that they're referring to, then the more questionable they become. So if we take the Roman uh, historian again, Tacitus, uh, the manuscripts that we have in existence today, the 20 copies that I was talking about, uh, were written a thousand years after the events to which they are referring. So what that means is that, yes, Tacitus wrote them down at the time, And they were passed on, but the earliest copies that we have are a thousand years later. And yet still, nobody questions the veracity of Roman historians like Tacitus. They're beyond question. They're studied. Now, I could keep going on about other historians like Suetonius and Thucydides, who, who, who are studied in historical degrees. But the point is that these had a thousand-year-plus gaps between the manuscripts and the times that they're referring to. And now I want to ask the question, how many years are there between our earliest manuscripts about Jesus and the times of Jesus and his disciples? How big a gap do you think there is? How many years? You don't have to call it out this time. The conservative estimate is not a thousand years, it's not 500 years. The conservative estimate is 30 years. Years. Now's the time to bring the one up on the screen. Thanks, Dave. This is the earliest manuscript of a New Testament text. It's the size of a business card. It's a fragment from the Gospel of John, chapter 18, verse 21. It's located at this very moment in the John Rylands University Library in Manchester, 
England. Someone's claiming, uh, claiming that they've been there. Thanks, Dave. You can bring that down. What's the point? Well, I think Christopher Hitchens' myth has been well and truly busted. We do have reliable and consistent witnesses if you're willing to use the academic dis- discipline of textual criticism, which is the standard and means that are used today. Let me bring you back to the first mistake that the, the women were making. They were making the mistake of denying the miracle of the resurrection. But they were making another mistake. If we come back to the text, they were denying not just the miracle, but the meaning of the resurrection. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, well, I don't deny the miracle of the resurrection, but I don't necessarily understand the meaning of the resurrection. What does it mean for me? And the British pastor Sam Alberry says, for many Christians, the resurrection's a nice thing to believe, but not necessarily vital. And yet it's interesting, if you look at verse 6 in our story, what the angels say to the women as they're reasoning with them. Have a look. The angels say, remember how Jesus told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners. And the word must is the controlling word for the next two phrases as well. Jesus must be crucified and on the third day he must rise again. So I want to pick up on that word, must. It's an important word. It's a controlling word. Again, the Collins Dictionary this time, it calls it a modal verb. And here's what the Collins Dictionary says about this kind of word. If you say one thing must have happened in order for something else to happen, you mean that it is necessary for the first thing to have happened before the second thing can happen. Jesus must be handed over to sinners, he must be crucified, and on the third day he must rise again. Why? I'll tell you why. It's so that our sins can be forgiven, our lives can be transformed, and our future guaranteed. Jesus must do these things. Now, I don't have time to go through all three of them, so I'm just going to focus on the first one, that he must be handed over for the forgiveness of sins. You see, the resurrection of Jesus assures us that our sins can be forgiven. What I want you to notice in our story today is that no one was celebrating on Saturday. No one was celebrating on Saturday, and I want you to notice nobody called it Good Friday until after Easter Sunday. And there's a very good reason for that. Because Christ's death doesn't mean anything on its own. How do I know that Christ's death covers over all of my sins? How do I know that he wasn't a deluded fanatic that got himself into a whole lot of trouble? There were plenty of those in the first century. I'll tell you how. Because when Jesus ra- when God raised Jesus from the dead, God was verifying and validating that his death brings full and perfect forgiveness. If the cross is the payment offered for our sins, the resurrection is how we know the payment was received. Sometimes in life, there are no sweeter words than paid in full. You get that on a receipt. 
you've been spending all this time paying off the home loan, the car loan, that university debt, and all of a sudden you receive the statement from the bank or from the money lenders saying, you owe nothing. You now have paid everything in full. And you want that. You want to be debt free. You want someone in authority from the bank to be able to sign off and say it's over. You don't owe anything anymore. Well, in the resurrection, God signs off on your forgiveness. And so if you ever wonder if Jesus has paid it all, your debt before God, look to the resurrection. Because in in the Bible, in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, Paul says, He was delivered over to death for our sins and he was raised for our justification. Which means that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So don't make the mistake of denying the miracle of the resurrection And don't make the mistake of denying the meaning of the resurrection. Because he lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of Easter. Lord, would you help us to delight in rather than to deny the miracle of the resurrection? Would you give us that assurance that it's true this morning by your spirit? And Lord, help us to delight in rather than to deny the meaning of the resurrection, that our sins have been forgiven, that our lives can be transformed and that our future is guaranteed. In Jesus' name we pray and everyone said, Amen.